Well, hey, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and uh, let's open up Scripture and see what the Lord has for us today. And maybe that is uh, what I just said is, is so common to you that you didn't even hear it. But let me say it again. What does the Lord have for us today? Because I really believe when we gather together uh, in the name of the Lord as the body of Christ, even of those of you here that may not believe in God and feel like that uh, you're not really sure who God is, that God brings, we believe God brings blessing to this gathering. And because of that, we believe that uh, it's not me that needs to wow you or bring anything spectacular or a new revelation, or our music doesn't need to be off the charts uh, in the category of what you consider good music. We really believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't work through Gabriel anymore. God doesn't work through Gabriel. He works through his Holy Spirit, who we believe is here today. So what does he have for you? So I would encourage you, if you don't have a pen, to bump the person next to you and say, give me yours. Or if you don't have a pencil, you know, go in the back on the table and grab a pencil if you're bold enough. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. If you don't own one, take the ones that we have and call it yours. And um, write down what God may have for you today. What is he saying to you? Because it's really, uh, I love these small services, and we intentionally made this in the round so that at any given point, someone can still see my rear in here, all right? I don't know why I said that, all right? I was leaving this morning, and I realized that I had apple pie all over the back of my pants from Thanksgiving. I thought about leaving it on there, uh, because about uh, 12 years ago, I was asked to speak at this uh, high school chapel. It was a Christian school. And did any of you go to a Christian school? Don't raise your hand. I don't want you to have to admit that in here. And uh, if let me tell you about chapels at Christian schools. They're the most boring places in the world. All right? And people go because they have to go. And so as a speaker, you know this. You're walking in and everybody's asleep before you even get in there. All right? They're passing notes. So I thought, how could I keep their attention? It was in a gymnasium. It has nothing to do with the sermon today. All right? But it's funny. So I'm, it, there was a big gymnasium with, you know, those pull-out bleachers. And I went to the bathroom, and I stuck toilet paper to the back of my shoe. And so it was like five feet behind me, and I walked out to do my talk. And everybody was zoned in the entire talk because they kept waiting for me to discover the embarrassing thing that I had toilet paper on my shoe. So I thought, apple pie. No. I never even acknowledged it. It was funny because, anyway, it's a long story. It was... Well, here we are in Advent season. And you just read the, we heard the story that Gabriel, one of the only two angels that are ever named in Scripture, comes down into this very non-eventful moment in this very non-eventful place in this very non-eventful season of life, much like this morning. I mean, what is spectacular about today? Maybe nothing or maybe everything. I mean, Nazareth was a town, historians believe, maybe at the most 2,000 people. It was so small and insignificant that the writer even had to put in here Nazareth, a town in Galilee. That's like somebody uh, here in Tennessee going, I live, going up to New York and go, I live in, uh, you know, Smyrna or Murfreesboro, you know, and having to tell people, oh, that's near Nashville. Oh, okay, because they may not acknowledge that they know where that is, and that's how small this town was. And in addition to that, it's been like four 500 years since any angel or any proclamation from the Lord. 
It's like 400 years before Mary, the books closed, heaven became silent, and people began to live their lives. And I want you to hear that because Mary didn't wake up that day going, oh, I hope today's the day that Gabriel brings me that message. She wasn't living in any kind of reality that she was being singled out by God to birth the Savior. She didn't have any acknowledgement and anything that we know that she understood that that was what she was set apart for. And I want us to lean into that because isn't it amazing that none of us live in this awareness that something spectacular is going to happen in our lives. We kind of live believing the exact opposite. And when it does happen, it's surprising. But would it be amazing if we opened our eyes to the reality that that is what God is doing in bringing spectacular to us? Because what he says to Mary is, and this is interesting, he says to Mary, uh, greetings, you who are highly favored. So I've been meditating on that. Wait, what does that mean? Like, if God came to you and said, oh, favored one, or you are highly favored from God, or God has decided that you're the target of his favor, what would that mean? I walked in the house this week, and uh, I think it was this week, maybe it was last week, Renee was watching the end of Oprah's uh, show, Favorite Things. Isn't that what it's called, Favorite Things? Where she uh, kind of gets for, spends a year thinking about and collecting all her favorite stuff, and then she has a show to talk about them, and she gives them all to her audience. Did any of you see this? Or have you heard about this? And I was, I, I could not believe it. Like, she had worked them into such a frenzy. This was like the last 45 minutes. And when I walked in, she was giving everybody these croissants from, like, I don't know who it was from, but, like, store-bought frozen croissants. And the people in the back were screaming as if they had just been set free from prison, you know? What is this? And then after that, they gave them tea. Did you see that? This lady was crying, like, we got tea. I can't believe it. So what if, is that it? Because we do believe that when we say, hey, we're favored, we anticipate that really what that's going to mean is life is going to be so much better now. Isn't it? We have this vague feeling that if, if this is your favorite year or this is the year that God poured his favor on you, wow, this is going to be the year that it's going to be amazing. It's like heaven, you know, opens up and Jesus says, this is the year of my favorite things. And he looks like Oprah and just starts giving stuff away. Okay, some of you probably thought that was sacrilegious. I'm sorry. But let me, uh, let me take you a little deeper because Mary was a person. Um, why was she greatly troubled? It says she wasn't troubled. She was greatly troubled. With what kind of greeting this was. Why was she troubled by that? See, you know, what's crazy is, is that uh, it didn't say that she was afraid, although Gabriel says, do not be afraid. It says that she was greatly troubled. And maybe she understood something a little bit that maybe we can grab a hold of today. Because let's talk about what it means to be favored. First, let me tell you what it's not. To be favored doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be much better. Matter of fact, to be favored by God does not mean that God's going to keep things normal. I mean, a lot of us live with this vague sense that if I can just get my life together 
and just and if I can just keep it together and just make it work, like if I could just keep it normal for a while, then, you know, if I could just get my relationships just to be normal or if I could just get my job to be normal or if I could just get my own emotions just to be normal or if I could just get, you know, whatever, if I could just get it to that place where it's just okay, then that would be awesome. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but God's favor does not mean that things are going to be normal. I mean, Mary, let's talk about her just for a second because she was a typical girl who she was betrothed to uh, Joseph. And what does that mean? We know from history that the Roman law allowed uh, people to betroth or to promise their daughters and their sons in marriage as early as the age of 12. And a lot of historians believe that, uh, that Mary was about 13 years old. Maybe 14. That what had happened is these two families had gotten together and said, hey, uh, I see you have a daughter, and say, hey, I see you have a son. Why don't, we, why don't we commit them to one another, and let's let them get married and start a family? And we think that's strange here that our parents would pick out our spouse. But when we were in Africa this summer, this was really a funny conversation because they're still doing that in northern Uganda. Families are getting together and say, this would be a good match. And so the, the parents begin to plan, and the daughter's family begins to save for the dowry. Or is it the other way around? Yeah, the guys pay for the dowry. Right. Okay. So Mary may be 13 or 14. Is there anybody here that's 13 or 14 years old? Somebody? Raise your hand if you're 13. Billy, thank you. Stand up. Joseph. Thank you. I mean, no kidding. I mean, he's not even shaven. Are you? I was talking about Joseph, not you, man. All right. Okay. I know. And then I saw that razor burn the other day. So they're in the middle of their one-year engagement. That means that both families had made the decisions that they're going to marry one another. They're getting ready for the, for the wedding. Actually, this one-year engagement is so committal that the only way that they can break it is actually to get divorced. They're not living together. They're not, they're not celebrating what life is like as a married couple but they are committed to one another. And in the middle of that commitment, here comes Gabriel. Isn't that crazy? I mean, come on, let's be serious. 14? That doesn't sound normal. Well, it gets better. Elizabeth, if you remember the reading, uh, her, her friend Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias also became pregnant. That if you read the earlier part of Luke chapter 1, the angel comes to Zacharias and says that, I know you guys are without children, and um, y'all are going to have a child. Most historians believe that Elizabeth was about 80 years old. Is there anybody here that's 80 years old? Anybody? Does anybody here feel like you're 80 years old? <clears throat> Think about that. I mean, we got... We got 13, 14-year-old, and 80-year-old both becoming pregnant. Is there anything normal about this? It even gets better. I mean, Zacharias, do you know anybody that's 80 years old and they've kind of quit caring what other people think? I think that's what's going to be awesome about being really old. Is like, you just don't care anymore. Go to Luke chapter 1. Look what happens. Zechariah asks the angel. The angel comes to him and says, hey, your wife's pregnant, and she's going to give birth. And you can almost hear him laugh when he says this to the angel. 
how can I be sure of this? Like, come on, you're kidding me, right? You're seriously an angel, and my wife is seriously pregnant, and I've got to go home and seriously build a nursery? Are you kidding me? He was so challenging, this angel. Listen to what Gabriel says to him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I mean, <laughs> isn't that just kind of funny? I don't know if you find that humorous. The angel is saying, who do you think you are? I stand in the presence of God. That's where my job is. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. He shut his mouth. He said, you're not going to talk again until that baby is born. Wow. What is normal to God? You know, God always seems to turn the tables over on what we consider normal or what we want to be normal. I mean, think about Jesus. He did this. When he went into the temple, it was normal for people to sell things in the temple. It was normal for people to consider how do we make a profit off of this thing. It's normal for churches to start trying to figure out how do we profit on all these people coming together and try to milk something out of this thing called church more than God ever intended. What's not normal is for the church to be the house of prayer, for be the community of people that believe it's God that's moving and working in the world that we live in and not us, that he may choose to work through us, but he doesn't need us. To be a community of people that really believes that God loves us enough that he cares about what we're praying about and that he moves on the things that we pray about. Jesus says that's normal for the church. But that's not normal for the world that we live in. I mean, think about shepherds became kings in the Bible. Fishermen became apostles. I mean, even in Ephesus, we found a demon-possessed prophetess that was rescued from that and became a pillar of the church. That just doesn't sound like normal. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. If you're in Luke, just keep going right past the book of Romans. Next book is Corinthians chapter 1. And this is in verse 26. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Brothers, verse 26, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you get nothing out of that passage, know this, no one qualifies by the merit of who they are for the grace of God. Matter of fact, we're often the very opposite of anything that we think qualifies us for the grace of God. So if we want to put Mary up on a pedestal and say, somehow or another, Mary was the the most righteous woman on the planet, guess what? Mary was a sinner just like you, just like me. She was in need of a Savior just like you are, just like I am. And that's what Paul is saying is that you need a Savior more than you realize. I need a Savior more than I realize. And it's a gift of God when he brings about that revelation of how deeply I need a sinner or a Savior. (laughs) 
I need sinners too, all right? But think about that. When God shines the light on me and I begin to see myself and all my need and all the places that I need God to step in and other people to step in, the Bible says that's a gift from the Lord because that's not normal for us. We want to hide all the stuff. We want to look better than we are. We want to convince everybody around us that I've got it together more than I really do have it together. My fear is, is that if you really discovered how much I don't have it together, then you wouldn't love me because we as a community typically, typically only love people that have it all together. Well, God turns that upside down and says that may be normal, but here's the abnormal. It's the broken, foolish, unmerited, crazy things of this world that God has chosen. Why? Why does he do that? So that we may boast in the Lord. Is God saying, I'm selfish and I only want you to boast in me? No, God says, I am truth and I'm bringing you to truth. Because in truth, if you look in the mirror, you don't have anything to boast about except for the Lord. Everything I have is from the Lord. Right? What else is it not? So we know that uh, favor isn't that this is going to be normal. But another thing that I hope favor means, kind of I got this vague feeling like, you know, the Oprah show, that if I go to Oprah show and get in my favorite things, that she's going to make my life better. She may not make it just stay normal. She's going to at least make it better. And what would better be for you? Would it be more money? Would it be, you know, I don't know, better relationship? Would it be to have a relationship? Would it be to get rid of a relationship? I don't know. <laughs> what, what would better be for you? But doesn't better often lead us to the place of it's easier or it's, it's a little bit more comfortable, that better often looks like if I could just get more pillows on my couch to make it just a little nicer for me, or if my car just would start in the morning, you know, or if it would turn off at night, you know, I don't know what your car problems might be, you know, my defroster didn't work this morning on my Jeep, and I'm like, that would be better. Where are you, Lord? Like, send an angel to put heat all over my window. Better. Well, this is crazy because uh, in God's categories, sorry to tell you, but favor doesn't necessarily mean easier, comfortable, or better. Let me explain. Mary, 13, maybe 14, has to go to her parents now, and what does she tell them? Dad, I'm pregnant. By God. Yeah, I mean, okay. Maybe she could pull that off by going to mom first and going, Mom, you got to help me here. Had a vision. This angel, Gabriel, who's this Gabriel cat? How long have you been seeing him? No, no, you don't understand. The Lord came to me. I mean, just imagine the conversations of the confusion because it's not like there are other girls in the village of Nazareth that had this happen to them. Right? I mean, it's got to be difficult. Like, where's the precedence for that? Even in the Bible, we don't see any precedence. So she's going to mom and dad, and she's having to explain it. You think that was easy or comfortable? Now trying to explain that to her friends. You think that was easy or comfortable? Try hearing, letting the neighbors hear it. Do you think that was easy or comfortable? Trying to explain it to the lady that lives two doors down that never liked Mary from the beginning, you know, or whatever. Now go to Joseph and try to explain it. Now, he's feeling the cultural pressure. He's feeling the community pressure. He's feeling pressure probably from his parents who are saying, I can't believe that she would destroy our family name by this because she's had an affair. She's cheated on you, and you guys aren't even together yet. So Joseph considered putting her away, meaning divorcing her quietly, 
and try to minimize the shame, but Joseph was saying, I cannot align my life with this. That's what he was saying at 14. Shame. Do you think that was easy or comfortable for Mary? Then Joseph had a dream. Now try to be Joseph and going back to your parents and saying, I've changed my mind. Why did you change your mind? Well, I had this dream. Really? Have you ever had a dream and acted on that dream and tried to explain to other people why you did that? Was that easy for you? Have you ever had a friend who's had a dream and they acted on the dream and they tried to explain it to you and you walked away going, whoo-hoo, you know? Think about how uneasy that is, how uncomfortable that is. So they decided to stay together. They traveled to Bethlehem. That wasn't easy. You know the stories. You've seen the TV specials. They end up having Jesus in a manger. And Joseph had another dream. All these strange people are coming, wise men, shepherds, you know, in the night. Little drummer boys. No, that's not in the Bible, by the way. (laughs) That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Anyway. Then they had another dream. Now the dreams start getting a little darker. Because now the angels come to Joseph in the dream and he says, get up and run for your life. They're coming to take the life of the baby. I mean, think about waking up in the middle of the night. The dreams have been true so far. And now you're running for your life with your wife and a brand new baby. You go to Egypt. At 13 and 14 years old, you move from the rural Nazareth by yourself, just the three of you, into Egypt. You think that was easy? I can't imagine that. Or how about the fact that you hear that Herod now is killing all the babies? Killing them all. And so there's a blood trail behind you all the way to Egypt, and you're hiding, and you're hiding your identity, and you're trying not to be found out. Then you have another dream, and the dream says it's time to go back. And so now you load up your family, you're trying to be faithful to the dream, and you're going back to where you started. You getting some of the picture here? This was not easy. And then on top of that, and maybe only a mother will ever understand this, and Gabriel talks about that, you will know pain like very few people have known because you will stand and watch your son die. You think that was easy? We don't have time to talk about the crucifixion, but how brutal that must have been for her to watch her son suffer like that. But you know, it's not just Mary, because wherever God shows up, he kind of turns this easy, comfortable thing and kind of drop kicks it out the window. I mean, does that trouble you? That troubles me. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look briefly at, uh, at another guy in Scripture who experienced the favor of God. Oh, joy. Verse 23. He's talking about his life here. He says, uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about other teachers. He says, I'm more, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. And this is the favor of the Lord. He's been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the, jo- the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Wow. 
Okay, no comment. And in danger from false brothers. I have labored and I have toiled and I have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Favor does not necessarily mean it's going to be easy. Matter of fact, favor may lead you to actually put easy down. Favor may actually change you so radically that you actually believe a sacrificial life is better for you than an easy, comfortable life. You actually may move in the direction of surrendering yourself to great sacrifice. Does that trouble you? In chapter 12, if you look at verse 9, Paul even says it this way. My, this is the Lord saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul so embraced this idea that favor does not necessarily mean mean easy, that favor means that I celebrate the fact that I'm weak because in my weakness he is strong. And in my weakness, I'm willing to go to the places that other people would refuse to go to, to love the people that other people refuse to love, to sacrifice things that other people would never sacrifice, to even compromise my own comfort for a greater cause. And what is that greater cause? Or why would we do that? Well, if you look at the life of Christ, it was him himself who came and became man. He came down from heaven. He left the comfort of heaven, came down, and he took on flesh. It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was something greater than his own comfort that was driving his purpose in life. And that other thing, that joy, took him to the cross. And that joy was his love for you and me. That was his joy. That through the cross, there would be redemption for you and for me. That we would be ushered into the paradigm of God's thinking. Of a relationship with the Lord like Mary was. You know, if you go back in Luke 1 and you go through the things that Gabriel said, and we're going to talk about these over the next three weeks, he says some really amazing things about Jesus. He says, well, name him Jesus. We'll talk about that, but that this Jesus is going to be great. He's going to be very great. That he's going to be son of the Most High. That he's going to sit on the throne of David. That he is going to reign. That this is no ordinary child that's going to be born. That this child is going to be different than any child that's ever come before him and any child that will ever come after him. How do we let ourselves this morning kind of be captured by that? How do we let it trouble us? Meaning, how do we let it stir the waters of our affections this morning to where we say, I I need to ponder that, that Christ the Savior was born. Frederick Buechner, uh, he put it this way, the word became flesh, ultimate mystery born with a skull you could crush one-handed. Incarnation is not tame. It is not beautiful. It is uninhabitable terror. It is unthinkable darkness riven with unbearable light. Agonizing laboring led to it. Vast upheavals of intergalactical space 
time split apart, a wrenching and a tearing of the very sinews of reality itself. You can only cover your eyes and shudder before it, before this. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Wow. That's good. Jesus came to rescue us. He is with us. So what does it mean that he, she is favored? What does it mean that we're favored? It means that the Lord is with us. That's what he says to her. That's what he says to us this morning. We are favored because the Lord is with us. He is with us through the, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is now with us. He is available for us. He inhabits us by the gift of his Holy Spirit, as we talked about at the beginning of the service. He ministers to us. He is with us. And that's a good thing, right? Right? Some of you, yeah. You know, it's uh, interesting because uh, it's kind of troubling, to be honest with you. I mean, in, there are times in my life where it kind of feels like, you know, when your parents dropped you off at college, if you went to college, and then you noticed your mom had a suitcase in the back seat, and she pulls it out, and she goes, I- I've decided to live with you for the first semester. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'll just put a blowout, you know, blow up little mattress on the floor. Don't worry, you won't notice it me at all. Would that be weird for you? Mom going to college with you? I mean, the Lord is with you all the time. Wherever you go, there's no place you can't go that he's not with you. He'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. You know, I grew up in uh, the South where uh, they would say things like, uh, you know, they would challenge us about not watching R-rated movies or PG-13 movies. And the way they would do that is, if Jesus was sitting right next to you, would you watch that movie? Have you ever heard that? Any of you ever heard that? No? Okay. A demented community I lived in. But just this knowledge, you know, of this guy with a beard, you know, maybe a robe, you know, and some sandals sitting next to me eating popcorn, you know? Okay. It's a little weird. I'm not sure that the idea that God is with me that Jesus is with me all the time is comforting. It can be really troubling, you know, or if you are involved in something and at that very moment that you're doing that thing that you don't want anybody to know what you're doing or your parents would be ashamed of, you died right at that moment, wouldn't you be ashamed? Like, because that's when God would come and get you and he would see what you were doing. Do we really want the Lord with us? Well, first, let me say this, that You don't have to die for the Lord to see what you're doing, by the way, all right? And yes, Jesus is with you in that movie theater, so I'm not going to let you off the hook for that one, all right? But he may have a very different perspective than we think. See, the Lord is with us. And there's a part of me that wants the Lord to be with me. And there are times where I really want the Lord. Like when I get pulled over by the police, I really want the Lord with me. Like, Lord, get me out of this, you know? Or when something tragic happens, or those things that happen that you just naturally say, oh my God, oh my God, you know? Those prayers that are instantaneous, or maybe you cuss, the lowest form of prayer, you know? That, that those are the moments that you want God to step in and be God, you know? Because in reality, and I'm just going to confess this to you because I want you to join with me in the reality of this, is that I am incredibly selfish. I, I am so self-centered. 
I have the capacity to naturally and easily make all of life about me. And in my meanness, I can take this passage and say, well, I like the idea of God being with me when I need him and want him to be with me. But when I don't want him to be with me, I don't kind of, that troubles me. You know, I don't need the Lord going there with me. And I have a way of wanting to manage all of it. And my selfishness has a way of sneaking up and not just tapping itself on the shoulder. It's like that, you know, if you saw the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, and he said, call them a kraken, you know, and that big creature comes out of the beast and just consumes ships. My selfishness can do that. It can hurt people I love. It can make me only think about the things that I want. It can make me spend money just on me or the things that I approve of. It can limit me in the things that I give away to other people. It can limit me in the way I give other people time or sacrifice my effort or whatever. I can even serve you out of pure selfishness because I can serve you and in my heart think, this is going to make me look like just an amazingly good person. I love that, and I can work that to my advantage. Not you? Okay, maybe more self-exposure. I need rescue. I'm trapped often in the vague world of saying, yes, that's awesome, the Lord is with us, in that vague feeling of, that kind of troubles me. Where is he? So here we come to this Christmas season. Let me close with this, okay? Because I'm not about to promote Christmas to you. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, you know, there's tons of traditions, and you all have different traditions, and, uh, you know, most of those traditions you have don't have any kind of Christian origin to them whatsoever. You know, mistletoe, we won't get into that, or Christmas trees, or fruitcake. That's the worst of them all. <laughs> Trust me. They use them to pro, uh, poison prisoners. Anyway, but it's a, I mean, Christmas is a great season of family and friends and gifts and good feelings and massive, massive, massive expectations, right? Not all good, but I want to challenge us this morning. I, I want to challenge us to be manipulators. And what I mean by that is I want you to manipulate and use this season I do. I want you to use it. And how I want you to use it is I want you to realize that as Christ followers, the, the Lord is with us. And because the Lord is with us, when he's bringing us to a revelation of that, he's really showing us that all of life can be worshipped. That I can go to work and I can actually realize that I serve the Lord and I'm serving him by working today. Or I come to church and I come here to serve the Lord and I can do that by singing and worshipping and saying hi to the person next to me and being open to maybe God is bringing me into a conversation with someone here or maybe God wants to use me this morning with somebody that's in this place or maybe I see something or hear something the Lord is using in my own life that will also minister to another person. We have the capacity to breathe the supernatural, the presence of the Lord into everything that we do. You know, even from just eating. Thank you, Lord. To being with a friend. Thank you, Lord. Being in silence. Thank you, Lord. We have, that's a gift that the Lord has given us, that we can breathe that into it. And this season, this Christmas, I want you to take Christmas and use it as a season of invitation to breathe wonder, wonder, the wonder that the Lord is with us back into our lives. I do. That you would allow your heart to be recaptured by the reality that God became flesh and that he is present with us. And he wants us to boast in him because he wants us to understand the power that is ours in him. 
it's kind of like the, you know, the group of people that have this amazing car. And they're timing themselves on the quarter mile. And it takes them 20 minutes because that's as fast as they can push it. And then somebody gets in it and says, hey, listen to this, and starts up the engine. Many of us live our Christian lives as how fast can I push this Christian life and make it work, and it makes us miserable, and we get tired, and we hate it, and church is such a drag, and other Christians just bug the weebie-jeebies out of us because, you know, well, anyway, we're all weird anyway, but because we're trying to push this thing. And the Lord is saying, would you come to the end of your ability to push the car, your own weakness? And would you jump in and hear the roar of the Holy Spirit? And in that weakness where I surrender myself to bucket seats and air conditioning, you know, I experience the power of this sports car that can do this quarter mile and how fast? Somebody's got to have a dream here. Okay, I don't know how fast a fast car does the quarter mile, but fast, all right? And the Lord wants to breathe that into my life. And he wants to use this season to breathe that into my life. He wants to use it every day. But especially Christmas, we can manipulate it. Because it's all about Jesus. Well, a lot of it's about Jesus, all right? Except for that fruitcake thing, all right? But a lot of it's about Jesus, so we can manipulate it. Because we know that Rudolph wasn't born on December the 25th, all right? There's nothing magical about December the 25th, but we can use it. We can let that tradition speak into our lives and let it be a voice as a community to breathe wonder back into the reality of our every day. Do you think Mary ever remembered the day that Gabriel came and visited her? Oh, you ought to read Mary's song later in that chapter. I mean, when she stopped and pondered the magnificent wonder of what had happened to her, her heart went from troubled and fear to worship. It is a great psalm that you should read. So how do we do that? And here's my challenge to you, okay? Mary, Luke chapter 1, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready. This is after the uh, angel left her. She got ready and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. She, She was captured with the wonder of what God was doing and she hurried. She hurried. She did not hesitate. She allowed the affections of her heart to now affect her time and her actions. And that's all I'm going to ask you to consider this season. If there's any spark this morning in your life that there's a desire for that light to burn in you, for you to come to the end of your weakness and experience the power of God, to know that his favor is about him turning the tables on what you consider normal and also about turning the tables to give you such a life that even sacrifice brings you great joy. Can you imagine that? That we willingly sacrifice for something that we love more than we love ourselves? That we would go on the journey of putting our selfishness down and experience something that's greater than us? And we know that, don't we? Do you know that on Friday, there were people outside Macy's at the Green Hills Mall at 4 in the morning? Were some of you there? I read that in the paper, like four in the morning to go shopping. I personally can't relate to that, all right? Now, there are things I would go do at four in the morning that you can't relate to. But the point that I'm trying to make is somewhere, somehow, in somebody's place, they made room for the affection to shop. And that affection to shop affected their sleep habits. And it also affected their spending habits. And it also affected their movement habits because they went to Macy's at four in the morning. 
and spend money. It happens. We hurry. We hurry to the things that cause our hearts to sing. So here's what I'm going to challenge you with. There are 27 days between now and Christmas. Would you hurry? Meaning, would you let the affection of your heart affect how you spend your time and how you spend your resources? And resources are so much more than money. I'm not talking about your spending habits for Christmas. I'm talking about, would you give time to be still? Would you, be time, would you spend time each day on these next 27 days and say, Lord, speak to me. Unfold for me the wonder of this. And I would challenge you to even just take the book of Luke. It's 24 chapters. You can read a chapter in, I don't know, two minutes. And hear what the Lord has to say to you. Just take time. Would you take that? Would you do that? Would you allow your selfishness to be put aside for a minute and say, Lord, come and take me and twist the normal to be your normal and lead me to a life that understands that sacrifice is like Christ. He gave everything for me. Now I can lean into that kind of love. Would you consider that? Mary said this to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Imagine opening up the word and saying, okay, Lord, I don't know what you have for me today. This is not normal to believe that God speaks to people, that I'm going to open up the word and I'm going to believe that because what Christ has purchased for us on the cross and through his resurrection, you are with me. You are with me right now. I'm listening. I am the Lord's servant. And then actually reading some of this and in response to what we read saying, may your word to me be fulfilled. I wonder what that would do for us this Christmas, this Advent season. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, it's, uh, it's amazing in all our crazy lives and the crazy busyness of uh, this season, even this last week, that maybe right now, this morning, uh, you really have something for us. <laughs> maybe this is a season, Lord, where you're just like a good father coming alongside of us and sitting with us and saying, be still. Hear what I have for you. Lord, help us to give up our vague idols of just keeping things normal or keeping things safe or easy or keeping things comfortable. Lord, help us realize that these are not the things that we were made for. Not to live life in our own strength, but to experience redemption through your son, Jesus Christ, and live lives that were made to be in connection with you. So help us hear that, Father. Help us to see that. In Christ's name, amen.